Wow, wow, wow. Worship team, thank you so much for leading. Kenny and Hank and Patrick, let's give them another hand. Praise God for what we've been able to worship with this morning. Well, my name is Michael Cavill. I serve as the assistant to the executive director for Kentucky Baptist Convention, and I am so excited to be here today. I'm excited for three reasons. One, I love your pastor. Uh, I know you love him too. Last week you were able to celebrate 20 years of Dr. Dan Summerlin being your pastor here. Aren't you so thankful for him and his ministry? Yeah, give him praise. It takes a special church and a special pastor uh, to have a 20-year partnership, and I know you're so thankful for him. I don't know if you realize how beloved your pastor, I know you know how beloved he is here, but how beloved he is throughout our entire state. There is, no, um, there is no pastor who's more respected in Kentucky Baptist circles than Dan Summerlin. And you're just so blessed to have him here. And we're so blessed that he's such a great partner with the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Secondly, I'm glad, excited to be here because you all are a great church. I'm so excited to hear what's happening in the life of this church. And you are one of the flagship uh, Kentucky Baptist churches in our state. Your support of the cooperative program ranks you in the top three of churches in the state of Kentucky. And I just want to say thank you. And when you give the, to the cooperative program, you're doing some amazing things. In fact, you're providing for 3,600 international missionaries around the world. Your team is serving in France, serving with IMB missionaries, are there because your church gives sacrificially. You're providing foster care to over 800 children through Sunrise Children's Services, through in Kentucky Baptist homes who are loving on children who come from broken, broken families. On Monday, I was at Oneida Baptist Institute that is about to start their school year as hundreds of mountain children will come in and get a Christian education because you give to the cooperative program. And on Friday, I was in Eastern Kentucky looking at the flood situation, and I was visiting some of the disaster relief sites, and I found a home of a lady who had one of her disaster relief team serving her. She had lost her uh, daughter and her mother-in-law in the flood. Her house, uh, the floodwaters had gotten up six feet tall, six feet high in the house, and one of your disaster relief teams was there helping to serve her and share with her the hope of Jesus Christ. Those things are made possible because of your generous gift. So thank you for your support of the cooperative program. Third reason I'm excited to be here today is I love to share the gospel. And today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. So I invite you to turn there if you would. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to see a story of how Christ has saved us and what he's called us to do upon our salvation. And as we prepare for the Lord to speak to us through Matthew chapter 18, I'll invite you to go to the Lord in prayer with me and ask him to speak to us in a mighty way. Father, we are your people and we treasure your word. And Lord, I pray today as we open up uh, your holy scripture that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray you will help me to be your messenger, to communicate your message to your people for your glory's sake. And we ask this in the name of Christ our King, we pray. Amen. As uh, Pastor Hank mentioned, my family's with me today. My wife, Carrie, is over here in the black dress. This Wednesday, we celebrated 20 years of marriage. 20 years this past Wednesday, so we're excited. Yes, please clap. Uh, uh, just, she's put up with a lot, so she deserves a lot of applause for putting with me for 20 years. So when we got married 20 years ago, her father, who's a, a bit of a jokester, told me, he said, the secret to a long-term marriage is this. 
He said, my wife and I go out to eat twice a week. She goes on Tuesday, I go on Thursday. And so that advice has kept us together for 20 years. Uh, our three kids are with us, uh, Jackson, Kennedy, and Madison. We've inadvertently got a dead president theme going with our children. They are 8th, ninth, and 11th grade. So we're almost finished with the middle school years with our three kids. Our kids have had a, a good experience with middle school. I don't know about you, my middle school experience was miserable. Anybody else have a miserable son, uh, middle school experience? Mine was miserable mostly because of a girl named Teresa. Now, when I was in middle school, I was this uh, uh, shy, nerdy, overweight kid with acne. And uh, I was an easy target. And this girl named Teresa, she was about this tall and about as round as she was tall, if I'm quite honest. She came from a very poor part of town. She wasn't that smart. She struggled academically. She was an easy target for people to make fun of, but she quickly realized that if she could find someone else to point the, the attention toward, that they would make fun of that person and not her. And guess who her target was? Me. She was horrendous in her teasing me throughout 7th and 8th grade. I can recall one time I was wearing a red uh, um, uh, uh, sweatsuit, and I come into the classroom, and she stands on the chair and says, look, it's the Kool-Aid man coming into class, is what she called me. Her ridicule of me was, was atrocious, so much so that I was afraid to see her in the hallway. Our school, we had a break in the afternoon, and while all the other kids were going outside or going to the gym, I would go to my next period class because I was so afraid of seeing her. My friends started to back off of me because they were afraid if they were associated with me that they would be made fun of by her as well. I remember as a kid, uh, my parents would go to Walmart or go somewhere shopping, and I did not want to go because I was so afraid I was going to see her, and she would make fun of me in front of my parents. When I was a seminary student, I was in a class uh, where we learned to do counseling, and one of the exercises was we had to go to a counselor and be counseled so that we could have that experience and know how to better counsel people. And I was in my very first counseling experience, and the counselor helped unpack how hurt I had been even 10 years later by Teresa. Have you been hurt by somebody before? You've probably been hurt. Some of you have been hurt in a much greater way. And you can understand why King Louis XII of France said that nothing smells as sweet as the dead body of my enemy. And that's why the words that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18 are so shocking. I mean, one of the most jaw-dropping, stop-you-in-your-step statements that Jesus would ever make is made right here in Matthew chapter 18. Peter comes to him in verse 21 and asks Jesus a question. It says here in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or perhaps your version says 70 times seven. To help us understand why Jesus would say this, he tells a story. And in verse 23, he launches into this story. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. 
As he began this settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, to give you a picture of how much money this man owed, 10,000 talents or 10,000 bags of gold, um, to put that in perspective, the Roman government each year in the area of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and Idumea, in that whole Middle Eastern region, would receive 900 talents of gold in taxes per year. So this man owes 11 times the entire tax revenue from the Roman government of that entire region. It's an unimaginable amount of money. In fact, one theologian said this, that if the man worked a regular, uh, regular wage at a regular job and he saved every single penny he earned, it would take him 250,000 years to repay his debt. In fact, the word in Greek is called murius. It means where we get the word myriad. It's the largest number in Koine Greek, 10,000. Basically, what Jesus is saying is this man owed an unimaginable, uncountable amount of money. And the story continues. A man who owes an amount of money that he cannot repay, a debt that was impossible for him to pay. And then in verse 26, it says this, Upon this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Uh, Imagine that. A debt that he can never repay was immediately wiped out. It was forgiven. It 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 was forgiven the debt that he owed the master. What a gracious, merciful master that would forgive a debt that a man could never repay. If this story is starting to sound familiar, maybe it should. Haven't, aren't you and I, don't we owe an unimaginable, unpayable debt to God because of our sin? And we could work 250,000 years doing all the good deeds we could think of, and it would never pay for the price of the sin that we've committed. But we have a wonderful master, a a gracious master, a merciful master who has offered us forgiveness. The gospel says this, that we are sinners and there's no way that we can pay our debt. In fact, eternity in hell does not even satisfy the full payment for our sin. But the good news is Christ died for our sins, taken on its penalty so we can be forgiven of the unpayable debt. One one preacher put it this way. He said, imagine you're standing in front of a dam that's 10,000 miles wide and 10,000 miles high, and all of a sudden the dam breaks and the water is rushing towards you, an unimaginable wall of water, and then the, the crevice opens in front of you that absorbs all the water. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The debt we could not pay, he took. That's why in the garden, Jesus is praying, Lord, take this cup from me. What's this cup he's talking about? This cup, throughout Scripture, you see in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Revelation, that the cup refers to the wrath of God for sin. And on the cross, Jesus took the cup and drank every single drop of it and turned it over and said, it is finished, as he paid the price for our sin. 
So you and I, like the servant, have been forgiven. If we follow Christ, have been forgiven an amazing debt. And if you haven't chosen to follow Christ, know that that debt you could never repay on your own. Only Jesus could pay it for you. Well, the man's been forgiven great. And this morning we realize that we have been forgiven great. The story continues, verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. To put it in perspective, 100 silver coins, 100 denarii is about 100 days wages. So you have one man who owes 250,000 years worth of wages, and it's been forgiven him. And he goes to his friend who owes him 100 days wages. And instead of forgiving his friend like he had been forgiven, he begins to choke him. He has him thrown into prison because of the debt that he is owed. And the other servants realize the hypocrisy of the moment. This man has been forgiven in an amazing way. But he refuses to grant forgiveness to someone who has sinned against him in an infinitesimal Finitesimal, I can't even say the word right. I could get it right at 9 o'clock. A very small amount compared to the amount that he had been forgiven. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. That isn't how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The, the, ser- the master saying to the servant, I forgave you an amount, amazing amount of money. Why didn't you forgive your neighbor who owed you a much, much, much smaller amount? He's thrown into prison. He's tortured because of his unwillingness to forgive someone else. You see, Jesus is saying this, that You and I have been forgiven great, so we should respond by forgiving great. That we forgive great because we've been forgiven great. Say that again. We forgive great because we have been forgiven great. Many years ago, my wife and I uh, were in Poland on a mission trip. We were traveling the country looking for sites to do future uh, mission experiences, mission trips, Uh, with churches in the uh, country of Poland. And on our tour, we are in the end of November, we, uh, our guide took us to the Auschwitz concentration camp. Some of you have read about that. You've seen movies about the horrible camp where the Nazis imprisoned Jewish people, the concentration camp where they were uh, beaten, killed, and worked to death. What we saw when we walked into the camp the wrought iron fence created by the Germans had in German written, Arbit mock free, which meant work brings freedom. But the people in the camp knew that it did not matter how hard they worked, they could never get free from the camp. We walked into the barracks where we saw, uh, looked like four by eight sheets of plywood that were put together as beds. 
where as many as six people would sleep on the same bed. They would turn sideways and try to sleep through the night. The flea-infested rodent um, uh, facilities that they would try to sleep in. We walked in rooms they had on display. One whole room was full of human hair that had been shaved from people's heads when they came into camp. Another room was full of shoes that had been uh, taken from people as they came. Another room was full of eyeglasses that had been uh, taken from people when they came to the camp. We witnessed the solitary confinement cells where if people acted up, they would be put in a three-foot-by-three-foot cell where it made it impossible for you to lay down, and people would die of exhaustion in these cells. We saw the firing squad, uh, a big concrete wall with bullet holes riddled in it where people were killed by a firing squad. And then we were taken into the shower facility. It looked like a locker room with shower heads hanging from the ceiling, soap uh, throughout the room. And as many of the Jewish people were ushered in there, they were disrobed, told that they were going to take a shower and be given new clothes. But instead of water coming out of the shower heads, What came out was toxic gas. They were killed. Next door was a crematorium where their bodies were burned. It's a horrible, dreadful, demonic place. A few years after that, I met a lady. Her name is Eva Kaur. Eva was working as a realtor in Terre Haute, Indiana. And I just happened by chance to meet her when we were living in Indiana at the same time. I shared with Eva, she talked about uh, her upbringing, and I shared about our visit to Poland, her native country. And she shared that, oh, I know all about Auschwitz because I was there. She and her twin sister Miriam had been captured uh, along with her family. And Dr. Joseph Mengele, a Nazi doctor, wanted to do these twin experiments where he would experiment on one twin and he would keep the other twin constant. He would compare how their bodies would react to certain things. His, her sister Miriam was the subject of many experiments and Eva was kept as the constant. Not, not the, the one was the variable and one was the constant. And she saw her 11-year-old sister die because of what happened to her at Auschwitz. She shared about the horrific feelings she had toward Joseph Mengele and the Nazi people and how she was so thankful that she had been liberated some more than 50 years ago. But what made Eva Kaur so interesting is that in her book she writes that on January 27, 1995, on the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, I stood by the ruins of the gas chambers with my children, and I read a document of forgiveness. And in that moment, I felt a burden of pain was lifted from me. I was no longer in the grip of pain and hate. I was finally free. That day I forgave the Nazis for what they had done to me and to my sister. And privately I forgave my parents who had hated all my life for not having saved me from Auschwitz. I believe with every fiber of my being that every human has the right to live without the pain of the past. And for me, granting forgiveness set me free. If Eva Kaur can forgive Nazi doctors for what they did to her and her family, if she can forgive them for that, then who are we to withhold forgiveness from other people who have sinned against us? 
Furthermore, if Christ can forgive us for an unimaginable debt that we owe him because of our sin, if Christ can forgive us of that, then who are we to withhold forgiveness from someone else who has wronged us? You see, we're no more like Christ than when we forgive others. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ Jesus God forgave you. We forgive great because we have been forgiven great. I know some of you are thinking right now, well, the guest preacher doesn't know what I've been through. He doesn't know what my ex-husband did to me. He doesn't know what my mother did to me. He does not realize what my business partner did to me. And I may not know your specific story, but from 15 years of pastoring, I've probably heard something similar to it, and I'm so sorry for what's happened to you. But the Bible is commanding us that because we've been forgiven, that we're merciful and forgive others. Because ultimately when people sin against us, the greater thing is they're sinning against God. That's why in the story of David and Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah in a great way. But when David's confessing his sin, he talks about his sin is great, more greatly toward God. He says in Psalm 51, 4, Against thee and thee only I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. So no matter what someone does to us, their sin against God is even greater than their sin against us. Has God reminded you of someone this morning? that perhaps you need to grant forgiveness to? Now, here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not saying the healing, uh, that, that time heals all pains. Forgiveness is not saying that we're justifying someone's actions. Forgiveness is not denying being hurt. Here's four things, four characteristics of what forgiveness is. The first thing is this. Forgiveness is a, a repeated action. Based on a misunderstanding of the book of Amos, Jewish rabbis taught that a person should only be forgiven three times. Jose uh, Hanini wrote this in uh, his writings. He said that he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. So Peter's question, what about seven times, was obviously generous. This is more than double the number of times that the Jewish uh, Pharisees said that you should forgive somebody. But Jesus says, no, no, not seven times, not three times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. Basically what Jesus is saying is we should not assume that we should keep count of how many times we forgive. I'm so thankful that I'm married to a woman who forgives me constantly for the things that I've done. Because we men can do some boneheaded things, can't we? But yet she continually forgives. When I was a pastor, I had a financial secretary who was excellent at her job. I could go into her office and say, um, I, can you show me how much we, we bought a new projector for the sanctuary 12 years ago. Can you show me who we bought it from and how much we paid for it? And in a matter of about 25 seconds, she'd open up a drawer and she'd dig through and she could pull out that. She was great at keeping records. And my hunch is you all have a staff like that here who's great at keeping records. The problem is some of us are great at keeping records too. And we remember every single thing anyone ever did against us. A husband and wife are with a counselor, and the husband says, every time my wife and I get into a fight, my wife gets historical. And the counselor says, don't you mean hysterical? And he says, no, I mean historical. She brings up every single thing I've ever done in my life. And perhaps you know what that's like. 
Forgiveness is a repeated action. Secondly, we see in forgiveness, we release the right to revenge. We release the right to revenge. A mother runs into the bedroom of her seven-year-old as she hears him screaming. And she observes her two-year-old is pulling the hair of her seven-year-old. And she bends down, takes the hands of the little two-year-old and lets them off her son's hair and says, oh, no, I'm sorry. She doesn't know that hurts. The mother turns down the hallway and when she hears now the two-year-old screaming, she runs back in the room and now the seven-year-old is pulling the hair of the two-year-old and he looks at the mom and says, she knows now. (laughs) Few would dispute our right to get even. In fact, when we're hurt, we want to respond by hurting other people. But Jesus would say, God would say to us in the Bible that vengeance is mine. And that when we forgive, we're releasing the right to get revenge on someone. Third, we know that in forgiveness, we remove bitterness. Listen to this. We remove bitterness. Not forgiving someone is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Not forgiving someone is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. My experience is, There are some of us who the original action that caused us pain is less painful than the decades of bitterness that we've held in our heart because of that action. In many cases, the bitterness that we hold is causing us more harm than the original act that was committed against us. So in forgiveness, we release bitterness. So I've got a family of five, and uh, we like going to the movies. I like going to the movie theater. And um, I remember years ago, we went to go see a movie. And um, I don't get emotional much in public, but I remember in this movie, I got emotional two times in public. The first time I got emotional um, at the movie theater was the part when we get emotional now just thinking about it. Um, the part that I got emotional and started crying at the movie theater was when the lady at the ticket booth said, five tickets and two popcorns will be $88. That's the part that made me just shed tears. $88 to take my family to the movies? you got to be kidding me. Second part was watching the movie. Um, the movie was unbroken. Perhaps some of you have seen it. The story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was an Olympic athlete, went to the Olympics, won medals, and he was, ser- he was served in World War II. He w- was captured and put in a Japanese POW camp where he was beaten mercilessly by a man he nicknamed the Bird. This man took out all his frustration on Louis, and he was beaten almost to the point of death. And I remember weeping watching what Louis went through as this man, the Bird, so attacked him. But the amazing moment was when Louis shares his willingness to forgive the bird. Uh, the, the, the full story is, Louis Zamperini comes home as a POW, and he has bitterness, he has anger, he cannot hardly function because he's so angry at this man, the bird. The bitterness is welling up in his heart until he goes to a Billy Graham crusade where he meets Jesus, and he's forgiven of his sin, and it changes his life. 
to the point where he is wanting to, to not only remove the bitterness he has in his heart, but grant forgiveness to the bird who made so much uh, misery in his life while he was in the POW camp. He writes in his book, I think the hardest thing in life is to forgive. Hate is self-destructive. If you hate somebody, you're not hurting the person you hate. Get this. If you hate somebody, you're not hurting the person you hate. You're hurting yourself. Forgiveness is healing. So we remove bitterness. Fourthly, forgiveness is restoring the relationship when possible. That's what Christ has done for us. When he forgives us, he restores the relationship. Now, there's sometimes that's not possible. While that's the model, sometimes it's not possible. Perhaps the person has passed away. Perhaps they will not join you in restoring the relationship. Perhaps restoring the relationship will cause you more harm. But when possible, we seek to restore the relationship. We forgive great because we have been forgiven great. Has God brought to your mind this morning someone that you need to forgive? It was September of 2001, and I was engaged to be married to my wife, Carrie. And we were serving at a homeless shelter in my hometown. We were serving the meal that day, and lots of people would come for the meal, people who were homeless, people who um, uh, were needy and did not have the funds to buy food. Lots of broken, hurting people would come to the homeless shelter every day. It was set up like a cafeteria line where we were each behind a certain desk, scooping out food onto uh, people's plates who were hungry, passing through the line. And I'm serving at this homeless shelter in my hometown. When I look across the way and coming down the food line, is Teresa. In that moment, I had three feelings. One, I wanted to go hide. I did not want her to make fun of me the way she did in middle school and embarrass me in front of my wife. The second part of me wanted to stand up on a chair and say, ha, 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 look at Teresa. You're not so big and popular now, are you? Homeless Teresa or Teresa who can't afford to buy food? I mean, there was a part of me that just wanted to embarrass her in front of everybody. Then the third part of me wanted to take that scoop of mashed potatoes and throw them right at her face. If I'm real honest, that's what I wanted to do. But I didn't do any of those things. I just served her her mashed potatoes, hoped she didn't recognize me, and she went and sat down and ate. We had finished serving people, and I'm in the dining room cleaning. I'm mopping the floor when I hear a voice from my past. Michael? And I turn around, and there's Teresa. Do you remember me? Oh, yeah, I remember you. How could I forget? Really nice what y'all did for us today. You're welcome, Teresa. I was really mean to you in middle school, wasn't I? Teresa, you have no idea what you did to me in middle school. She said, I often feel bad about that. Would you forgive me? 
And in that moment, the anger and bitterness and hurt that I had felt for a decade, the hatred I had felt for a decade for this woman, vanished. And by the grace of God, I said, yes, Teresa, I forgive you. You see, forgiveness is not about the guilty being punished. Forgiveness is about the innocent extending mercy. Who do you need to extend mercy to today? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for your son Jesus. We're thankful that because we've been forgiven, that we have the opportunity and the ability to forgive others. And Lord, I pray that this morning, Lord, those who have not called you a Savior would do that. Or those who are hurt from the past will be able to let go of that and give it to you, Father, for the glory of your Son, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.